Hello and welcome, heroes, to the Crit Academy. I am your host, Justin. And I'm your co-host, Ryan. This podcast was created to provide you, our heroes, with new and reusable material for both players and DMs. We hope to inspire you with creative content that you can bring with you on your next adventure. Thanks for joining us today at the Crit Academy Studios, where everything's made up and the roles don't matter. Yep, that's right. Your roles are like a player without a character sheet. (laughs) And they hope the DM can print them off for them. Yeah. (laughs) On today's show... We're going to talk about awe-inspiring encounters. Those encounters that really get your blood boiling, get your heart <laughs> racing, almost as much as sex. Almost, though. Not quite. And, of course, we will have our favorite section of the podcast, which is our unearthed tips and tricks. But before that, let's hear from Crit Nation. So today we have a comment from Redditor Ankoku Teon, and he asks, How can I encourage my players to become more proactive? They have a tendency to stand there and stare at passing NPCs until one runs up and tells them where to go. I want to structure locations and encounters in a way that encourages them to explore and investigate on their own. They do well in combat, working together in creative ways to either pacify or eliminate the enemy. But without direct threat, they slowly grind to a halt. The one exception is another DM who does explore and take initiative, and I've created rule-bending items to allow him to be able to spur the others on. This helped a bit, but... Well, this is actually a really good question because that's a real common problem. Yeah. Where the players kind of just stand around not really sure what they're exactly. supposed to be as doing. As much as we talk about not railroading your players, a lot of new players really want to be railroaded because they don't know what to do when they're not being told where to go and what to do. Right, and some of that's actually pretty easy to settle. Um, when it comes to newer players specifically, I take a very binary path. I basically will give them one or two choices, and that's pretty much it right. early on. You know, when, for instance, they ha- they decide, they walk into this new town, and I've got plans for them, whatever it may be. I might say, well, you know that every town has a local mercenary board that you can approach. You can find those usually at a tavern. Or you can go speak with the local no- uh, noble and get some specifics. And see what's been going on yes. in the town. Um, those are really the two options that I've presented them with. Right. But that doesn't mean that they can't say, hey, can I go see if there's something at the, a local, is there a local merchant I can go right. visit? Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, he has another DM. I'm assuming he means one of his players is also a DM. Mm-hmm. And, That's the way I take it. Yeah, and if you do have a player that is willing to take the initiative and, and go out and do the exploring, that's really good because he can be kind of an example for the other players. Right. The one downside to that is they may start relying on him to always do that. So. Which can make the game go slow for them. Right. Because, because they have one person taking the lead it's all his, the time. It becomes his game. Right. So I think really basically what needs to happen is your, your players just need more experience with the game. You know, Having a player in your party that is taking the initiative and is going out allows you to see how you can do things and how you can you know carry yourself and carry your, you know, play your character in a setting and then when they take their you know when they go to another game and, and play there they may be in a similar situation where no one wants to take the lead but they've you know they've been playing for a while and they've seen other people and you know, they've seen this guy in your party do it and so they might you know in that game step up a little bit and start taking the lead and then they start getting some experience with being the person taking the lead and eventually Right, and getting them to that point is, you know, is a difficult job as a DM, but you can start off with just a few choices, give them those choices, those hooks, those adventure hooks. And start giving them more and more, and be more and more, I don't want to use the word vague, but stop giving them 
you know, like you said at first, you might give them one or two options of what they can do. Right. You know, at first it might be, okay, so you walk into the town, and like you said, you know about the local mercenary board, you want to go talk to the noble. Eventually, you'll get to the point where, okay, so you walk into the town, and, you know, what do you, what do you guys want to do? Right, they'll immediately know that, well, let's go check the tavern for any local ongoings. Let's go talk to the local lord and see if he's having any issues, because let's be honest, they're going to pay the most. Right. You know, they're going to start to come to those conclusions on their own without any guidance from you, and then you can toss in the one hook that you actually care about. Right. Or yeah, if there is that. a hook that you want them to find... Don't try to railroad them to where it's at, you know, if you have, you know, if the hook you want to give is, you know, let's use a generic one, like, okay, there's a a camp of bandits outside of the town that's been harassing travelers coming in and out of the town. Mm -hmm. That's the hook you want to give them. There are a lot of different ways you can introduce that hook. Right. You know, if they are one of these groups that, you know, they're not really proactive and they're just kind of waiting around for something to happen, maybe someone comes running into the town screaming about how they just got attacked. Or, or maybe they get bumped into and somebody tries to rob them. That's that, one of those bandits. Yeah. Or they get into a fight in a bar. That's a pretty common right. trope, right? And then if they are more proactive and they are willing to go out and look for things, it can be as simple as you know a random stranger they talk to on the street you mm-hmm. know, says something about it. Or if they decide to go talk to the noble and he says, you know, we do have a problem. You know, we've been, you know, our merchants and our our peasants are being you know, harassed by these bandits, and we need someone to do something about it. Right. There are hundreds of ways that you can introduce that type of hook, and it's just finding what which one suits your players the best. Yeah, and eventually that comes with experience, and they will learn. And if you, you're lucky enough to have somebody that has that experience, kind of have them act as a mentor, but make sure you gradually pull away from relying on them and start asking, right. well, hey, Jim, what do you think about what Al wants to do? Yeah, well, or you know, a really easy way to incorporate players into the story is by using their backstory. Most games will have all the players create a backstory for their character. Mm-hmm. If you have a person from one of your characters' backstories show up, if you know one of your characters' backstories is that you know he was a performer, let's say you have a bard in your group, and he was a performer, and he was performing a show in the castle, you know, for the local noble, and one of his friends, you know, begged, he wanted to just see the inside of the castle one time, you know, he'd never been in there, he just wanted to see what it looked like. And then he gets caught in the princess's room or something. And so right. you go down with him and you guys both end up in jail. How, when, however long later, you end up escaping and leave him there alone. Right. You know, if that's one of your character's backstories, then one day you can have them bump into that character. Or you can have them hear some information about that guy or that character's coming back to get revenge on him for leaving him in jail. Right. You know, try to directly involve your players in the storyline and make them, you know, make their characters attached to what's going on. Right. And that definitely makes them more inquisitive to what's going on right. too, you know. Yeah. If my family was killed by some drakes, for example, and you know, I'm in a local tavern and hear that there's some sort of infestation, I'm going to go investigate on my own. I don't right. need to be told, but it's it's very reliant on the DM early on, but as they get experience, you'll get there. So we want to thank Redditor on Coco Tan for we probably his question. butchered that pronunciation, but I don't give a fuck. <laughs> file a complaint with the complaint department. The um, circular file. All right. <laughs> this episode was brought to you by Goblin Tech. If it's not exploding, it's not working right. <laughs> now to the meat and potatoes of our podcast, the main topic. So on to our main topic: awe-inspiring counters. Tell me, Ryan. What do you think makes an awe-inspiring encounter? Well, there are hundreds of ways and hundreds of things that you can add into your encounters to make them awe-inspiring and memorable for your players. (laughs) (laughs) One of the the main things, if we're talking about a combat encounter, is 
the type of enemies that you ha you're having your characters face. You know, it's a lot more interesting if your your characters are fighting, you know, three fighters and two mages than if they're just fighting, you know, ten fighters. Right. You know, it's a lot more interesting when you have diversity in your enemies. You know, the monster manual is 350 pages full of just juicy, yeah, different types of creatures that you can throw at your characters. And each one of these character or each one of these creatures in this uh, in the monster manual has descriptions of what they look like, of the sounds that they make, the, the smells that they may have, and you can use those to explain the things that they're doing in combat and to really add flavor to your encounters. A really big thing that you can do to make your encounters more memorable, memorable is to use special monsters. You know, don't just throw five goblins at them. You really want to you want to mix it up. You want right. to have you want to have a, maybe a couple mages, you want to have a couple melee, you want to have some smart intellectual type uh, creatures, you want to have some dumb creatures mixed in. Especially if you're fighting, if you're doing some kind of, if you're doing a type of campaign where they're fighting like organized, you know, creatures that use organized military strategy, take that into account that, you know, these creatures are intelligent. They're not just going to send a group of ten raging berserkers at you. You know, they may have people that are going to stay back and try to pick you off at a range while there are people that are running in and beating your face in. Right. So, yeah, you want to really mix those monsters in there, you know. And, and we talked briefly about this before. In 4th edition, they had different grouping types of monsters, and they always encouraged you to try mixing those different groups. You had strikers, which were high damage, low HP. You had controllers that were all about locking down targets in some way, shape, or form. You had uh, lurkers, things that jumped out of the shadows or out surprised the enemy. You had uh, leaders, which were like healer-type characters and then of course you had all the artillery which is all the range so right. an engagement with all melee isn't as exciting as an engagement with some melee and with some ranged into it exactly another you know a really big thing about it is about building memorable encounters is all inspiring encounters all inspiring encounters is one like if you give names to the creatures that they're fighting not like oh this is a kobold but is this cobalt name? Zrock. Yeah, exactly. If your campaign's been moving, you know, following the storyline, and you're at this kind of like big boss fight at the end, make that boss fight special. Right. You know, you don't don't. It's not really exciting if you go through this, you know, couple week long campaign or this month x amount of month long campaign, and you get to the end and it's a highwayman and a couple bodyguards. You know, that's that's not that's not the kind of fight that you're going to remember. There are a lot of ways that you can make it more memorable. One of them is by throwing different types of monsters at them. Personally, one of my favorite types of like big baddie guy, big bad guy monsters is the Beholder, but that's kind of a high level monster. Um, you're not going to be. Doesn't mean that you at. couldn't take some of those concepts right. and put them on lower level right. creatures, which brings us back to creating special monsters. Or another, you know, a, a really cool thing you can do is you can give a really unique magic item to the boss that changes the way the the fight is yes handled. For example, in the DMG. Um, in its section about magic items, it has a, a whole subsection about sentient items. And there's one that, uh, I don't remember what it's called, but essentially every time you attack and hit, the person you attack has to make a wisdom save, I believe. And if they fail, one of their strength ability scores is drained and goes to you. Huh. So Very if you have a bad guy that's using that... And you get hit with it repeatedly, you become yeah. a feeble old man. Yeah, especially. And even if he is hitting someone who isn't strength-based, if he's hitting, like, a ranger or a wizard or something, you know, you think, oh, it's not that big of a deal, I'm losing strength. But he's gaining strength. And right. now every time he's hitting you, he's hitting you harder. 
Right. So just things like that can make a fight way more memorable. Yeah, I, re- I really like the idea of making sure you give your the, the big baddies names. You know, give it a name like Toru Skull Crusher, something that you can repeat over and over throughout uh, when they're in taverns, when they're walking around cit- the city, when they're talking to villagers. Make this name something that people fear just the sound of it. Right. So when you finally come up to this big baddie, as the DM, you've now put an expectation. Especially if, you know, when you can introduce that character long before the actual fight. Oh, yes. You know, think about when you're playing a game like... Think about a game like World of Warcraft. You know, think about back to, like, Wrath of the Lich King. Everyone knew who the Lich King was and who Arthas was. And so it's not like you got into that boss fight and we're like, oh, who's this guy I'm killing? Like, you knew who he was. You knew the story <laughs> behind like it. most dungeons. <laughs> right. You knew who he was. You knew the story behind it. And so that's why that fight is more memorable than, like you said, random fights in, you know, five-man dungeons. Right. Because you knew this character. You knew... You know the backstory to it, and you you were you were attached to this storyline that you were seeing play out before your before you. Yeah, and as the DM, you really can do things to to work that up. We talked, you know, you just talked about the Lich King and how people knew him. Take the initiative to spread those rumors, to let them hear little right. stories. You know, take a minute to make that little bit of extra effort in making sure you're weaving the 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 fear and the the stories exactly. of whatever your big baddie is. Make sure you use all three dimensions. Yes. People forget that you're in a three-dimensional space. I like to use mon- big monsters. Actually, you when we you guys fought the giant flying things, they swooped down, they grabbed people, flew, flew up, away. and flew away. Some place times dropping them, smashing them into the ground, smashing them into the side of mountains. That adds another level that often gets ignored, and I think that you should be able to do that even at low levels. Having like a rock swoop down and grab somebody, you know, and try to fly away with them. Fighting on the side of a mountain, you know, throwing not side of a mountain, side of a cliff, you know, you, maybe you're. Uh, your group is scaling a cliff, and now they are fighting spiders that are on the side of it while they're hanging from, you know, ropes right. as they're trying to climb up. You know, there's a lot How of things you can do. How does that alter what you're doing? Huh? How does that alter the way you face the obstacles in front of you? Right. Well, first of all, you only have one hand, so you have to hold the rope with the other hand. Right. So no two-handed weapons. Definitely consider all three dimensions when building your encounters. You know, yeah, is there a high location somebody can get to to gain advantage or... Somebody with, you know, a bow and a crossbow, can he peek around from a second story building mm-hmm. and take a sniper shot at somebody? You know, what happens when somebody just gets an arrow bedded in them next to you and now they're dead and you have to look around in this big this big city that's got windows everywhere, where'd it come from? Right. You know, leading to some sort of chase. The way that you force them to fight, you know, if they're fighting in a forest and they're fighting this big monster or they're fighting a little goblin that's throwing bombs at them, you know, and throws a bomb and it explodes and a tree falls. Okay, well, it, does it fall where they're standing? Because if it does, they have to somehow get out of the way of that. Yes, you know, there's a lot of things that get overlooked, and side effects is one of those. If I cast a giant fireball, yes, it does damage to these, but what does it do to the terrain? Right. Does if it for, change the terrain at all? Exactly. For example, we were, I believe you were, I don't think you were DMing, I think you were playing in this game, and we were, it was in the Adventurers League in the last season. It was the water, or the barge right in, encounter where you had to like run the inn and we mm-hmm. walked into this room and there was this, we had to fight this guy and someone in our party cast burning hands in a wooden tavern yeah burn the place down yeah burn the place down or in one of our games i we had got this vial that was supposed to be alchemist fire and it turned out to be 
some weird magic item that can't be put out without with non-magical means, and I spilled a drop and burned <laughs> half the city down. Yeah, <laughs> I love see. I love stuff like that because it's little little things. But you know, going back to the uh, the explosions, you know, and the the side effects. For, forced movement on on players is a good way to engage in combat. Imagine, for instance, you know, you're imagine your adventures are backed onto a bridge and they are being pincered from both sides. And they're gradually being surrounded to the point where the only thing behind them is a cliff. At that point, knowing they're fighting something that's gradually pushing them back, knocking them down, whatever, what have you, that becomes a real fear that they could fall off. It could be right. a bridge, could be a cliff, whatever it is. Imposing force movement. In this case, you talked about blowing up trees. You know, if that tree you know, goes to fall on them, they need to make some sort of dexterity save to get out of the way. They now, you've now forced them to move and you've created cover that, you know, that probably wasn't being used before. Right. We talked back in episode three of other actions you can take besides just attacking. Right. And grappling is a big one. You know, people overlook some of the the grapple and the shove somebody to the ground. You know, when you get a uh, a creature that can take two actions, they can grapple somebody, which is a contested check, not an attack roll, which, believe it or not, not a lot of monsters are very strong in in that check, especially if you're trained in athletics. Right. Use those monsters to grapple the, the players and drag them around. You know, we had an encounter where uh, my players were engaged in a, a forest match with these giant edder caps, and one thing they have is they have spider walk they can walk up walls in this case they were grappling the players and carrying them up trees and then just power bombing them <laughs> that alone changed the the sense of combat you know they're there dangling and if they try to break the grapple they know they're gonna fall so they have to then make decisions uh based on okay well if i break the grapple i'm gonna fall down do i risk the falling and dropping and potentially going prone do i wait for him to jump with me maybe i'll sustain a little extra damage but at least he'll be down with me you know what do i do you know it forces them to come up with a different a different way to handle the combat instead of just hoping that they can blow it up before it it dive bombs onto the ground Another big example is a lot of the bigger, badder monsters in the Monster Manual have lair actions. You know, mm-hmm. you can, if you really are getting towards one of these big encounters in your fight, you can have them fight one of these creatures in, in their quote-unquote lair. Mm-hmm. For example, one of my favorite monsters that I've never gotten to use because it has a challenge rating of 23 is the Kraken. Release the Kraken. <laughs> Release the Kraken. And so, so, for example, the Kraken has three different lair abilities and then three regional effects. You know, every turn they can make, on every initiative count of 20, the Kraken takes one of its lair actions, so it can make a, try to push everyone back, and if they fail the save, they get pushed 60 feet away. If they uh, succeed on the save, they only get pushed 10 feet. Or, you know, they make the water become electrically charged and stuff like that. And then regional effects, you know, within six miles, Every aquatic creature with a score of two or lower is charmed by the Kraken and aggressive towards intruders. Right there is your your character hook. Right. Your, your uh, adventure hook, right? Yeah. People are complaining that all of a sudden these animals have been gradually becoming yeah, more or aggressive. Or the Kraken or water elementals, co- water elementals coalesce within six miles of the lair. So these water elementals just keep popping up in the ocean and no one knows what's happening. Right. And, you know, maybe they're attacking ships or they're attacking ports or they're just being a nuisance and people want to know where they're coming from. 
you know, things like that can be your hook that just, you know, it's really simple and seems unimportant. But really, you know, that's look what it's leading to. Right. And something to keep in mind, and I've done this a couple times, and I don't know if you remember any of them, but you can give small layer actions to other yeah. groups. You know, if you go into uh, a, a nest of, you know, kobolds, what type of uh, monsters in the monster manual will have some sort of layer action that you can include that would fit with this? Right. Or come up with your own. Something that happens at the top of every initiative. Force those other uh, environmental effects for them to deal with yeah for example if you know even if the person you're fighting is just like a bandit leader but he's in like their headquarters it's his it's his hq man exactly he knows that he knows this area he knows the ins and outs and where he can and can't go if there are any secret passages he knows about those the players don't right so that's important to remember you know we always try to tell you you know what kind of information does your character know but it's also important to remember what kind of character as a dm what kind of information does the NPCs have not all combat encounters end in death you know sometimes for example if for example if you're you know the king is has an assassin that's trying to kill him and he succeeds you know the king the king is dead but do you think the assassin is going to stand stand around and try to fight you no he's going to run Fuck no, he's he not. did what he he did what he came to do so now he's gone so now your players have to decide do they chase him and try to you know make him answer for what he just did or do they let him go and try to maybe save the king? Well, and, and it goes deeper in that, too. You know, there's a lot of scenarios where the players will run into the big bad guy that they're looking for. Who's to say that just because they ran into him, he's going to stick around? Yeah. He's got better things. We've all seen the movies where the, the bad guy is approached during a, a deep conversation of importance of his mega plan. But he disappears while the his minions are dealing with the heroes and that's a really good thing to do and you can even do it to the point where okay he might do one thing maybe he'll cast a spell or give some orders or some sort of threat to the the heroes and then be on his way letting his minions deal with it yeah a good example of that are vampires you know unless they've taken i believe it's radiant damage on the turn that they hit zero hit points they don't die they turn into a mist and go back to their lair Mm -hmm. so that can be a really big thing if you know you kill a vampire but he's not dead right. you, know, you kill him he hits zero hit points he disappears You're like oh okay we got him and then a week later they're walking on the road and he attacks him again right and you mentioned the assassin not only let him get away what if they decide to chase him how do you how do you resolve that right. you can enter the chase scene he probably know he probably knows a thing or two about you know getting away from somebody right but a tail. if your players and you can encourage him to try to chase after him. Right. And you can enter a sort of uh, the, a skill challenge, so to speak. You know, The players start dashing after him, and now they got to make consecutive rolls to catch up to him. You know, Maybe they start running through a market, and he's ducking around and corners throwing stuff and behind throwing him stuff and, behind yeah. them, and they're tripping over it. And, and this is where your characters can be really proactive, too. You know, the sorcerer can be trying to like cast like ice in front of him, trying to make him slip, or... You know, trying to drop stuff in front of him. Right, because, you know, in most cases, you know, damage, direct damage isn't really going to slow him down, but unless right. you kill him. Right. Maybe that mage in the back uses telekinesis to knock over, says, I'm going to knock over some uh, cart with groceries on it to hopefully hopefully slow him down. Right. And so now you're not in a combat encounter. Your combat counter has now shifted to a chase scene, which can go all different directions depending on the nature of the location. You know, being in a, a swamp is a really good one, 
because you can get lost, you can get caught in quicksand, you can get, you know, run into some strange monster that you weren't planning on, you know, (laughs) if they get lost. Get caught in Devil's Snare. What's that? It's from Harry Potter. I don't, I didn't have a thing for that, sorry. (laughs) My bad. Not really my, my jazz, buddy. But, you know, those chase scenes can be really, can really add to whatever encounter you have. But in order to have those, you have to have the option of escape for either the players or for the NPCs. Right. The other thing you can do, I highly recommend doing this, is adding traps to your encounters. Whether it's a social encounter where they're sitting there talking to a king and he's invading a land and you're on a diplomatic mission to get him to cancel his orders. And he flips a switch and the floor drops out from underneath you. Right. Now, this went from a diplomatic mission to, I'm locked in a prison and i got to escape. Right. Or, let's say you're in, engaged in a combat encounter with bullywogs, for example, and you're raiding their lair. Maybe they decide to flood the room. They have no problem. They can breathe underwater. They don't give a shit. You can. But you can. <laughs> so now, but you're still engaged with them. They're still fighting. So right. your characters now have to deal with this immediate threat while trying to handle this threat that's going to be a problem in a few minutes when the room's flooded and you can't breathe. Right. So you you give them different options and ways to deal with it, or they come up with their own. We've kind of talked about in the past, you know, letting, when they're talking, coming up with ideas, maybe you can right. add some of those ideas if they decide to try them instead of just saying no. But right. give them, okay, they're going to try to disarm this switch that the guy threw, them, and maybe they fail and it breaks. Well, they now they can't disarm, now they it, can't right. disarm it, so now they're forced to look for other alternatives. Right. Or even, you know, if it's as simple as they're trying to sneak in somewhere and there are traps laid to prevent people from doing just that. If they're not checking for them, you know, they may hit that tripwire and a giant log may come down and knock them 10 feet into the air. Right. And you can do a lot with that, you know. Some of the more common traps are, you know, spike pits or or swinging, you know, pendulum blades or, you know magical statues that breathe fire you know all those things can be disarmed but can create a a constant awareness a battle awareness for instance if you put uh, a statue that spins and constantly shoots out a cone of fire you know somebody can disable it or somebody's going to get fried or they can choose to ignore it and it's going to use it or they can use it yes yeah you know it comes back to whether maybe they decide that the fire resistant tiefling is going to try to grapple one of the guys and just hold them in front of this torrent of fire Yeah. yeah So there, it opens up another level of engagement that isn't there if you just got them fighting for, you know, human barbarians. It's actually, I was in a game with a guy who, we were fighting, and there was like a giant pool of acid, and he cast Bigby's hand and grabbed the guy and dunked him in the acid. Right, and that's a yeah. great example of a player finding a way, okay, this is here, how can I utilize it? Right. And, you know, it's up to us as the DMs to make sure that those things are available for them. Right. And are. this kind of is a little off topic, but with actions like that, for example, you know, picking up a, a person, a human being, and dunking them in a pool of acid, take into account how that, how that might have an effect on the character's alignment. And I know that's kind of a completely different topic. Which would be a great episode, by the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. I just, and I just moral ambiguity yeah. and, and character alignment. You know, because, yeah, this may be a bad guy, but... You're about to melt his face off. Exactly. You're dunking him into a pool of acid that's melting his skin off his body. How is that going to affect your character's psyche? 
Right. And that's something I think that gets lost a lot. Yeah. I definitely think that's a good topic for another episode. Yeah, pe- yeah, so stay tuned. It's easy to be detached from the actions that you're not actually doing because right. you're not actually doing these things. And I think that comes down to the DM. Right. I really, one thing that gets overlooked, for instance, you know, and you see it in, in movies and everything, you know, you're standing over top of this kobold. Your blades are locked. You're close enough to smell his nasty breath. But you look in his eyes, deep into his eyes, and you are sure that you see fear. He's scared. You can almost feel his trembling. He knows that you're going to kill him. And he starts begging for his life. Right. And when you start doing stuff like that, that's a, that's a cobalt. Nobody cares about cobalts, but adding a little bit of flavor like that, you have him start begging for his life saying he'll do anything, he just he just wants to be, he doesn't want to be poor no more, or whatever his motives are. With some different characters, it is harder to enforce that kind of moral ambiguity. For example, like, a rogue, you know, they're kind of assholes. <laughs> like, that's true. Right, like, that's kind of the whole shtick. But, you know, if you have someone who's a cleric or a paladin, and they start they doing that. things that don't necessarily fall in line with their deity... Mm-hmm. Because take keep into account what their deity is. You know, if they have the god, you know, if their deity is the god of war, whoever the god of war is, and Kratos, duh. Yeah. <laughs> if if their deity is the god of war, and they're you know doing what needs to be done to win the war, their god may be okay with it. Right. But if their god is the god of mercy and forgiveness, and they're being cruel and unforgiving, <laughs> then their god might not be okay with that. Even if they are doing it for the greater good, their god right. might not see it that way. But even if it doesn't affect the person that is you know looking right at that person for instance in our example with the the goblin i say goblin or cobalt cobalt whatever with the cobalt you know with with the example of the cobalt you know if the other players hear him begging for his life how are they going to react yeah not necessarily the person directly engaged with him so you can bring a little bit of that that moral ambiguity into it and and pull at their heartstrings a little bit yeah. you know Agreed. maybe maybe He's a young kobold who's just got swept up in the wrong gang, you know? They're not, not everything is evil, though, if you follow the DMG solely, uh, the, the monster manual specifically, then yeah, everything is evil, but right. maybe they run into the one that's not, you know? So, yeah, uh, make sure you add traps. Traps really help, whether it's a room full of, filling with acid or a room filling with sand as the giant pyramid you're in is closing and entombing right. everybody inside. Yeah. That There's a good combination right there. Toss a chase scene or an escape scene with the entire pyramid filling with sand, and it's also a labyrinth. Right. And what happens if they can't solve the, the skill challenge or the puzzles quick enough to get out, right. and they're locked in this tomb, and then maybe later on you play a group of different adventurers who find this tomb and find the dead corpses of the players they were right. before, you know? <laughs> kind of spinning my wheels there, but uh, it's important to include those little things. Another good thing, and we kind of briefly touched on it, is... Other options besides imminent, imminent defeat, you know, how are intelligent creatures, or even non-intelligent, to going to react when they know they're going to lose? Yeah, are they going to stand and fight to the death, or are they going to beg for their life, or are they going to try to run away? Right, like some creatures will stand and fight. You know, like a wolf is going to fight to the death. You know, yeah. like a, a beast that isn't very intelligent is just going to, you know, it's going to try to kill the thing that is hurting right. it, but. A person or a more intelligent, you know, not even just person in the sense of a human, but like a sentient being, like, you know, a dwarf or an elf, you know, if something's, ha- you know, if they see I'm not going to win this battle, they may realize that and try to withdraw or call for friends. 
Yes, that's something I don't think gets used enough. Yes. You raiding a castle and people are systematically running into a room and just clearing it out, why don't... You should be... If they're smart enough, they would say, okay, I can't win this. I'm going to turn and run and get help. Right. And if they're running, screaming their head off and blowing shit up to get attention, you're going to be in trouble. And, right. And, you know, the DM can set those challenges, whether it's... You know, once the alarm is sounded, every single round another enemy joins the battle until they shut off the alarm. So that, once again, is another form of trap that the players have to deal with. They are fighting this endless supply of enemies until they shut off the source of the alarm. Right. And you you have to really add those. And it, it, that's something that could be done on the fly, too. You don't have to have that planned in advance for your encounter. It can... You know, they're fighting five guys in a room, and they kill four of them. The guy begs for his life, and if they don't do it, maybe he tries to run out, you know. And once he does, what is he going to run into? Is he going to run into more of his guys, or is he going to run through a room, you're going to chase him, you're going to engage a new group, and he's going to keep running right. and go get more <laughs> right. until he's got a small army. Yeah, it just snowballs and snowballs yes. and gets bigger and bigger. Because, you know, and right there's a good example of they didn't deal with the root cause of the problem, so now their problem is bigger. Right. You know, so... Another big thing to take into account is the terrain that you're fighting in. It's a lot more interesting and engaging to have a battle on the side of the mountain of a volcano that's erupting and lava's flowing everywhere. and Changing the terrain exactly. as you're fighting on it. And player actions can change the terrain, too. You know, I'm sticking with the mountain theme. Let's say you're in some mountain cave and you're one of your characters decide, I'm going to cast Thunder Wave. Okay, well now there's an <laughs> avalanche outside on the mountain and you just blocked in the entrance to the cave. So how do you get out now? Like, what? Where does that leave them? Now what is their next course of action? How do they get themselves out of this cave? Right. I, I really think that uh, having taking the terrain into consideration is a missed opportunity for a lot of people. When, for instance, let's say you're fighting alongside of a river and somebody casts a big spell. Like, I'm going to use fireball example because that's probably the most commonly known. Right. Where the f- explosion is so big that it messes up the flow of the river. And now the river is now flooding or its stream is flowing towards you. You know, yeah. Or, you know, you cast, again, with casting Thunder Wave, you cast that near a river. Or maybe you just caused a tsunami. Like a small tsunami. <laughs> and you don't find out till later that, you know, this village was it was right. flooded because of a giant tsunami. Because that's the thing is Thunder Wave is supposed to have like the it's supposed to be like this crazy force energy wave. Yeah. So but I don't I don't know how yeah. powerful it's supposed to be. Right. I know it sends out a shock wave that can be heard hundreds of feet away. Right, so, exactly. Noise. Taking take into consideration the different terrains. We mentioned mountain and lava, but a city you know you could terrain. be in a, a city that has people running around, and you're yes. in a fight and chasing these people through. You know, what if or they think like Assassin's Creed style? You know, you can just blend into the crowd. That you could lose the person you're chasing easily. Right. In that, or you can use it as cover to get away. Right. You know, if you know if the big Goliath charges someone and slams them into the wooden wall of the tavern, well, they might break through the wall. And now there's a giant hole in the building that... And how's the owner going to feel about that? Yeah. Well, now you just created another entrance to the building that mm-hmm. more people can see what's happening and come in and help either your side or their side, or people can, you know, the guy you're fighting, oh, well, now he's outside, you're all inside. If he can get away from the barbarian, he's gone. Right, he's especially gone. if he knows he's going to lose. Right. Or maybe he goes and gets some of his buddies. Right. Terrain is important. Make sure... You come up with ways. If you're in a snowy area, make the ground icy. Give them, make them. If they decide to run, make sure that you give them like a deck save to see if they fall on their can. 
You know, you can do a lot with that. Maybe if somebody shoves somebody when they're standing on ice, you give them a bonus to how the distance that they get shoved. Little things like that. Oil slicks are another good one. You know, you fight in places with oil lamps all the time. Right. Why not have an oil slick as a result, you know, of one being smashed? Or then leads to the whole place burning down because some giddy maid shot a firebolt at an area that's soaked in oil. And we've said this a couple of times, but remember which enemies are intelligent, which ones aren't. The ones who are are going to use that to their advantage. You know, are they going to be calling out to each other? I think that's something that doesn't get, that gets kind of overlooked sometimes too. You know, when you've got a group of wizards and you're fighting against a, one of the heroes as a wizard, are they going to stop and consider that? That, hey, we need to deal with him first. Hey, you know what? Hey, Jace, why don't you go take the next counterspell or some sort of communication or... Is that big bugbear going to give some instruction to his goblins to team up on a specific person? Right. Maybe a healer, for instance. Right. And because in your head, you're already doing this, and you're already, in a way, communicating between them because you know what they're all thinking because you're controlling them. So you're directing all of their actions. So if you can vocalize the things that are running through these characters' heads, even though you may not be changing the way the game's actually going to go, you're giving that information because they... in. In reality, they would have to give that information to each other in some way. Right. And it would be... Usually yelling. Yeah, and the other people can hear that too. Now, if they speak a different language, maybe that's somewhere you can kind of mess with that. Right. But it goes both ways too, though. If the players are sitting negotiating about what to do, have the the NPCs react to that. Right. You know, if uh, the, the heroes say, you two, take out the one on the left. And then uh, the leader or somebody, they all decide... Surround him, protect him, and they right. all take a defensive measure based on what those players said. Right. So it can definitely add a level of engagement. Now, that gets kind of... When you're following the rules, it, it's supposed to so, uh, follow a specific time frame, but as long as your DM's not too touchy on the exact time, you can have a lot of fun in combat, especially when you're talking and engaging the players as right. well as the NPCs in a scenario. One of my favorite things to do, you know, you've got you've got bandits, you know, raiding a town and he's the last one alive, you know. What happens when he takes a hostage? Hostages are everywhere. Yeah. Very often. Maybe it's a player. Maybe yeah. they get a hold of a player. That can quickly change the tide of battle where you were certainly going to beat this person, but now you have a life and death choice to make. Right. And you know, if they do take up one of your players and get away, now you've just created a whole new story hook where they have to make a choice to either abandon him or try to get him back. <laughs> Which, by the way, I did. I was like, oh, he got caught. Well, let's keep going. Our mission's over here. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't care because that wasn't our goal. Right. You know, we ran into people more powerful than us. Way, way too powerful. And so that person got caught instead of fighting to the death because my character's smarter than that. My mission was to escort this person to another location, so that's what I did, and so it created a, it messed up the DM's plans quite a bit because he wanted us to go back and die saving this person instead of just letting him sacrifice himself for it. But anyways, so you know, creating, taking advantage in hostages and in human shields can really change and test your your heroes' resolve, especially if there's somebody that's lawful good in the group. Right. Because then they're going to be protesting the actions, and they're probably going to go in and try to save the person themselves. And so. they may feel the call of duty and abandon the group to go save that person. Right. And now they are also running headlong into death by themselves. <laughs> so now there are two people that are trapped. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that really can help with making your encounters great, when the players are talking, listen to them. 
take what they say, use it against them or use it with them. You know, when they're sitting there coming up with reasons of why this person that is shackled is asking you to free him, you know, they might come up with, well, maybe he's a bad guy. Maybe you didn't have that planned out. Maybe right. it's a bad guy now. Right. Maybe it's a serious. Maybe why is that person shackled up? If they decide that that person is a bad person and you didn't plan that, add that as a seed to the character for later where they pretend to to be the, uh, the good guy, you know, and then end up backstabbing the players. You don't right. have to think about that stuff in advance. The players will do it for you. Right. And, you know, remember that hacking and slashing isn't the only answer. You know, sometimes, for example, you use the... You use the situation of you know a cobalt begging for its life. What if the the script is turned a little bit and the players are now in a position where they're begging an NPC for their life? That NPC is still going to experience those emotions that the player is experiencing when they're in that situation. How what how is the NPC going to feel when they have someone crying and begging for mercy? Is that NPC gonna you know maybe spare them and take them prisoner? Or I wish players would beg for mercy sometimes. Yeah. Because they forget that that's an option. Yeah. They they do. They'll fight until their last dying breath. You know, they'll wait till they're unconscious to say anything. I've had, though, I have had a player who put every amount of skill points in deception, or in this case it was bluff, where he would try to bluff his way out of everything. And one of the things he would try to do before he was about to go unconscious was beg for them to stop. He said, no, 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 wait, I'm pregnant. You know, stuff like that. Right. And sometimes he won the the roles so that they would hesitate. And normally I resolve this through, you know, they lost an action that turn. Right. Because they waited. Because they would consider that. And then he'd end up backstabbing them or something. And never actually taking the way out and leaving, you know. But using those emotions and those emotional ties really can help make a scenario a lot better. Whether it's combat or not combat. Right. So we've kind of talked about this already, but um, being descriptive in everyone's actions, not just the attack actions, but things that they're doing in general. If somebody wants to make an attack, make sure that they describe every aspect of it. How does that frostbite attack look when it's being cast or whether it's an enemy or a player? We talked in episode three pretty heavily about descriptions and how imperative they are to combat. It doesn't matter whether it's a combat encounter or a social encounter. Make sure that are very descriptive with your attacks and your emotions and just any action that your characters are taking. Another thing that can really shake up a game is what happens when people miss. You know, you constantly get into the, the oh, your attack missed. Okay, move on to the next person. Right. There should be consequences for that, especially, especially if it's a big... I was going to say, especially if it's like a big spell or even something as simple as an arrow, you know? Mm-hmm. If you're in the middle, you know, if you're just showing off, messing around in a city and you shoot an arrow, well, where does that arrow land? You know, do they shoot it and kind of, like, be all cocky and brush their shoulder off and hear, Ah, my arm! I think we've done something like that. I don't yeah. know who, who did it, but they were, I think they were using spells. They were just casting spells randomly for no reason. I'm just like, why? But yes, you know, when... Remember we were having the competition to try to shoot down your familiar? Yes, that's what it was. <laughs> and I think I hit one of the guys. Yeah. Okay, I do remember that. You know, when an attack misses, take an opportunity to do something with that. Not just necessarily on a crit fail, but when that fireball erupts, you know, what happens? We talked briefly about the fireball earlier, but does it burn stuff on, light stuff on fire? You know, does it, <laughs> does it put a hole in a wall? Yeah. I mean, when you shoot that arrow and it, does it bounce off a wall and tink in front of somebody? I mean, not, you don't even have to hit anybody, just 
you loosen your arrow wildly and it bounces off his shield and ricochets off the wall and embeds itself near your foot. A little description like that is much more engaging and memorable than you miss. Right. Please no. don't say yeah. you miss. For example, you know, if you're trying to, you know, if there's some thief breaking into the castle trying to steal some extremely expensive and old tapestry and you're, you know, the big raging barbarian swings his axe and rolls a one, does he hit the tapestry? Oh, <laughs> does he man. maybe slice it in half and, well, it's not stolen, but, you know, now it's ruined. Now like, it's not worth as much. Right. You need to be aware of the results of the things that are going on that aren't necessarily considered a success because those can be just as enjoyable and engaging as a successful crit. But yeah. it's up to you to make that happen. Yeah, honestly, if you are if you have a good DM, the ones are usually more fun than the 20s. I, I agree. Well, not even a good DM. If the I like to try to let my uh, my players kind of decide what the result is. And I'll award inspiration if they come up with something good. We go back to Brotor and his character. <laughs> you know, he he decided his own his own results for when he crushed that dead girl's skull, you yeah. know, as a whole, as a lawful good paladin and broke him. Yeah. He didn't do it on purpose, but you know, and he did all that himself. So those those failures can be just as engaging as, to the rest of it, but you got to think about it as that, not as okay, moving on. Right. And like I said, one one simple line is all it takes, you know, using the arrow example. Um the other thing that I think doesn't get uh that really we as DMs tend to shy away from sometimes is the furnitures in the room. Right. You know, everyone knows this, you know, you walk into a a stone dungeon room and there's another door on the other side with a couple monsters in it unless we specifically decide there needs to be something there hmm. but sometimes it's good to just populate it something you know maybe there's a bench in there that the player can kick over and hide behind for cover right duck down behind that sofa that's in the middle of the room or maybe they pick up a chair and throw it or shoot you down know? a chandelier onto an enemy yeah um, you know you gotta you gotta give them those options right um and each of those little things even if they don't use them, have your NPCs use them. Yeah. Have them duck behind the, the counter in the bar. Maybe yeah. they grab a bottle of whiskey and chuck it and, you know, use a firebolt to bur- try to burn the place down. That'd be pretty cool. Right. You know, it's it may not be a feature of that character, but if they're in a bar, whiskey's flammable or alcohol's flammable, grab a bottle, chuck it, and light a match <laughs> or yeah. shoot a firebolt or something to ignite it. That totally now changes back to the terrain we talked about in the environment. It changed the scenario, so now they're in a burning building. Well, yeah. are they going to stay in that building? burning building? Is the ceiling going to start dropping on top of right. them as you know, it's burning down? Yeah, and you know, weather is another thing that, you know... Does, Speaking is, of environment. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're you know, that fighter that's wearing his full plate armor... <laughs> is he regretting his choice? Yeah, when you're in the desert, or when it's just swelteringly hot. Or the barbarian who's wearing next to nothing in the in the dead of winter in a snowstorm. How is he feeling right now? He's probably regretting his choice of loincloth, I'd imagine. Weather happens, and I think it gets overlooked often, but when you're doing long travels or just when you're engaged, like, you know, for instance, during a, a thunderstorm, maybe that mage's thunder wave has got a little bit more oomph to it because it's in the middle of a thunderstorm. Maybe the lightning bolt is a little more powerful. You know, right. you can you can add little little touches here and there to kind of fit in with the environment. So definitely include the the weather. Um, skill challenges for long tra- uh, travel is a really quick way to do that. Right. But you mentioned the the knight in the the armor. 
you know, maybe he has to keep making saves to prevent exhaustion because he's wearing it. Maybe he decides to take it off. Well, what happens if you get caught in the in, in, a, fight. in, in a fight yeah, it when takes he's naked? Time to put your armor on. Can't do it in one combat. So it right. takes like ten minutes, I think. Depending on the type of armor, I right. think like plate armor takes like ten minutes. Yeah, at least to dawn. So, well, that's it. That's our main topic: awe-inspiring encounters. We hope you were able to take a few good ideas away from this. We've got plenty more where that came from. <laughs> Full but, of them. <laughs> but for now, we're going to move on to our Unearth Tips and Tricks segment. But first we have our our weekly character concept, the Legendary Smith. You know, a character whose goal is to achieve the most perfectly crafted item that anyone has ever seen. Right. And whether it's armor, you know, a weapon, or, you know, some random just little... Trinket? Yeah, a little doodad that he carries around. A doodad. <laughs> you a know, widget. Maybe, Fear my widgets. <laughs> Fear my widgets. <laughs> you know, maybe he's out to... He's searching for maybe some yeah, sort of mystical, a mystical forge or a special wizard to yeah, imbue it. Maybe he's out to like you know, and this could be a you know, you can use this as an NPC or a, a PC. You know, as a backstory, maybe that's the the big hook of this character. You know, he wants, he's doing whatever he can to find a way to improve his skills, whether that means seeking out somebody a little bit better, finding some mystical forge, right. finding a special. You know, enchanter, somebody that can imbue it with weapons. Maybe right. he'll decide to multi-class so he can learn to imbue his stuff on his own. Right. You know, maybe you get to a new city, and the first thing he wants to do is seek out the local smith and challenge him to a contest. Ooh, I like and, that. And prove his ability and, you know, prove he's the superior smith. Who can forge the best right. sword. Now, as a player, try not to do that every time you go to a city because it becomes predictable and it loses its... You know, it loses the interesting part of it. But, you know, that is something you can use. Where yeah, it could just be, you know, is there some sort of, uh, is there a smith here with a good reputation or a grand reputation? Right. And maybe the DM will say, well, not really here. There's about 300 people in this village. And right. You know, what happens if he loses that contest? You know, does that just consume his life? Become and, all sad and shit. Yeah, you know, maybe he wants another chance and he wants to, you know, have another contest with the guy. But the guy, but he's like, no, I beat you. You have to prove yourself before I'll, you know. Teach you? Or before I'll compete with you again. Ooh, nice. I like that. So that is our uh, our character concept of the podcast. The legendary Smith. Our encounter of the podcast is Kamikaze Magmans. <laughs> we talked about awe-inspiring encounters, so this one just kind of fit. I love these little critters. If you don't know what they are, they're little tiny ash-flaming creatures. <laughs> One of their features is that they explode upon death. There are some. They're essentially like little, like impling looking things. They're kind of like imps, I guess. Yeah. But they're basically they explode on on death. Well, I think that we can change it up a little bit. I like to make them explode on contact. Yeah. So you set it up so your players are in some sort of scenario where a wizard or a sorcerer or somebody has created these big giant portals and they're summoning these things into into the world to either attack you or terrorize a village or i mean can you just imagine yeah. how a village would look after four portals right. opened up and these yeah. little imagine imagine them like zerglings or banelings from starcraft oh yeah 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 definitely. they literally just you know you send a bunch of them they just run into the wall boom 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 they blow up right and just destroy stuff right and the players have to deal with this whether they stop them by taking the brunt of the assault when they fight them or trying to slow them down with control uh, abilities but you can also uh, impose like a, a skill challenge for the mages to close the portals. Right. And you know, meanwhile, while they're trying to close these portals, 
the other heroes are running around trying to stop, you know, these things from blowing up or trying to avoid them in whatever right. way they can. But it really gets interesting if, let's say, you take them to some sort of mage tower and they're on a floating platform. Uh, I use this ex- this encounter in uh, a volcano setting on the plane of fire where they were coming out of these portals and as they were engaging a, a dragon on this flying flying platform, every time they blew up, they blew out a portion of the floor. The floor. Right. So now there's a new hazard. Well, the giant dragon they were fighting would flap its wings care. and would push people away. So now they had oh, to be careful to push them the towards holes. the holes. Yes. Yeah. So they would fall, nearly fall through. Now, luckily, one of them, could, two of them could fly. So that really that made helps. it a little bit easier. <laughs> but they didn't know that was encounter that they were going into. But so as they're, the longer this fight went on, the less floor there was. So it got harder and harder and harder for them to engage. The fighters started running out of space to fight because they couldn't take a direct route to right. the uh, main boss. So what they ended up doing is just, you know, using whatever basic range attacks they had and trying to keep their distance. But meanwhile, the beating of this guy's wings is shoving him off the edge of the platform or down these holes or, you know, all kinds of different things. Meanwhile, the once the mages finally cl- start closing the portals, and they'll come up with different ways. You can do a generic skill check or me, I allowed them to imbue. Uh, they didn't have uh, detect magic available because it wasn't prepared. Right. But or not or dispel magic, but so what he had he do it. He said, "Well, they don't really need to detect it." Like, yeah, no, bad. he can see it. <laughs> no, he uh, he says, "Well, can I send more magical energy into it and try to make it, you know, go boom?" Overload. Yeah. yeah, and I said, "Absolutely, you can." So I basically gave him a DC and I lowered the DC for the higher spell slots he used. Mm. So he started draining his own energy and his own spell resources to close these portals, and that was a. I didn't think about that. I was just mm-hmm. having him do a skill challenge. But, mm-hmm. you know, Dispel Magic would have been a simple solution. And he regretted not having that prepared because that's one of those ones that doesn't get yeah. prepared all or, that often. Or, you know, even a simple, something as simple as maybe the people summoning these portals have to maintain the spell. You know? Yes, there and was people you, that created if it. If you silence them, well, now they're not speaking the incantation anymore. Maybe the, the portal dies. Mm. Or if you, you know, knock them out or, you know, hit them hard enough to knock their concentration, the portal dies. Uh, they created the portals, but then harnessed the portals to heal the dragon. Mm. So now they had two reasons to close these portals. Right. What was really bad is the guys that were channeling it also exploded. So in one situation, the platform where the portal was at got blown up. So the only person that could reach it was the person that could fly. Mm. So, you know, that's a good example of taking advantage of uh, terrain combat where they really had to put their heads together to deal with this. Now, yeah. the encounter wasn't beyond their skill set to handle, but the collection of creativity. challenges, the, the, the collection of challenges that they had to overcome made it significantly diff- more difficult. That is our encounter of the podcast, the Kamikaze Magmans. Moving on to our DM tip of the podcast. It's a really simple one, and essentially, it's it, we kind of touched on it in the main topic, and it's or in the main segment, and it's to fill your rooms. You know, nobody wants a boring room that looks exactly like the last one that they were in. Populate it with things and people that your players can interact with. Yes, definitely. You know, remember that not everything has to be significant. Right. You know, perhaps they walk into the room and there's a bookcase filled with meaningless tomes on one wall, and then there's a locked chest. So, ooh, it's locked. There must be something good in it. And then they pick the lock, and it's empty. There's nothing in it. It was just there. But they didn't check the book that the bookcase that had a spell scroll or something right. in it. Yeah, and you know, some things do have significance. You know, maybe if they if they do look through that bookcase and they look close enough, 
they can find, you know, in one of those meaningless tomes, there's a detailed map of the area. Oh, there you go. Or, you know, some secret that the person they're after, you know, some secret about the person that they're after that they didn't know. Or, you know, some information that leads them to believe that this tyrannical rule of this area may, in fact, be otherworldly and not, not human. Or there's nothing in it and it gives you something to knock over on the enemy. Yeah. Or, you know, it gives you that information that the tyrannical ruler is otherworldly and he's like a vampire, but it's false. You know? Yeah. Yeah, maybe they find misleading information. Maybe it's a lie, misleading information. Maybe it's the journal of some conspiracy theorist. Oh, I like that. You just, like, scored ten cool points, man. (laughs) That's fantastic. So, yeah, just remember to have fun with your environments and and, be creative. Don't have empty rooms as you're just walking into that there's, you know, a floor and a door. You know, just fill it with stuff. Tables, chairs, bookcases, beds. It doesn't have to be important stuff. You know, right. if they walk into a kitchen, well, it's probably going to be stocked, so there's going to be food and stuff. Maybe not anything of super importance, you know, not anything of huge significance, but there is stuff there. Yeah, maybe they decide they want to use the kitchen knife to carve up the enemies, you know. Or they want some rice. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our DM tip of the podcast. Fill your rooms. With shit. Our magic item of the podcast is the Tome of Blood Magic. Now, I'm going to be honest. I ripped this directly from uh, uh, Dragon Age. I created this item because one of my players actually complained that he felt like he didn't have enough spell slots. And he says, man, I'd be willing willing to do anything to get more spell slots. I said, okay. So I took a page right out of uh, Dragon Age Origin, and I allowed him to use his hit die to fuel the recovery of spell slots. And uh, he did it. And it didn't grant him a whole lot. In this case, uh, sacrificing half of your hit die to recover a single spell slot of a level of your choice up to the number of hit die sacrificed. So at level 20, it would let him regenerate one ninth level spell. Or any one spell lower. Obviously, you wouldn't want to. But you would take the ninth level. You would take the ninth level, right? Why not? Um, or in this case, I think we were level 5, and it let him uh, do uh, a second level spell. So, basically, it allowed him to get a little extra spell slots at a risk of his own health. Right. And there was a couple times, that wasn't a very good idea, because he ended up going unconscious and had, oh, nearly dying a couple Wait, times. so does it take his hit points or his hit die? Hit die. Okay, so just his He couldn't his recover, right. right. So he went into a final boss battle with no hit die with half his health. I think it'd also be interesting to have a version that takes your hit points. Yeah, I can. I had considered. I went through a lot of different uh, yeah. iterations before I settled on the hit die, because then that one wouldn't directly affect his current combat, but would exhaust his body so that he couldn't recover normally. And yeah. that was kind of what I ended up settling on. Now I don't know how balanced this is. It didn't seem to affect yeah. our game hardly at all. It basically gave him an extra highest level spell slot, right? Which definitely makes him a little more potent, but he also went unconscious a lot because he couldn't recover hit points. Right. So because half your hit dies a lot. Yes, especially as a wizard. Yeah. Um, he didn't really have... You don't have a lot of hit points and your hit die are small. Yes, so. and so obviously that was something that he was willing to do, and he really liked it, and we kind of we kind of went with it as, you know, he this tomb literally sucked his life force from him to fuel a spell that was stored in it. Right. And you know what? It worked, and he loved it, and it was a really decent way to give him what he wanted. What was interesting, though, is... When he uh, ended up dying, the his soul was trapped, trapped in into it, and there was signature. There was names in the back, and he didn't know what they were for. But when he died, his name was scribbled on the back, so his soul was trapped within it. 
So he didn't know that was going to happen, and that's okay. That was more for me. Right. But nobody wanted anything to do with the book after that, um, which is fine. That's their choice. It's a tome. And that's also this, that's a really good or good opportunity to create a sentient item. Oh, see, I didn't even consider sentient that. Sentient items are a lot of fun. I didn't even consider you know, maybe, that. Maybe what the book's like whispering in his ear the entire time he's using it, and it's slowly corrupting him and slowly <sighs> turning him evil, you know? That's good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, sentient items are so much fun. They're my, like, after, like, using sentient items for a little bit, magic items suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> so that is our magic item of the podcast, the Tomb of Blood Magic. Our player tip of the podcast is don't, don't be, be a, a dick. dick. And you can avoid dickitude by building group connections. You know, I think it's really underestimated how valuable it can be to establish a way that your characters know each other. You know, whether it's, you know, we, you know, these two characters, you know, my character and his character, we're twins. Or, you know, we grew up in the same area or we were in jail together or we served in the military together. Even if it's just a small connection like that, building interpersonal relationships between the group can really help the dynamic during role play and during combat as well. Absolutely. You know, playing on the twin example, if you see your twin get just absolutely demolished by something, how's that going to affect you? You know, if you're in a party with just a bunch of randos and you're going to make decisions based on a dragon grabs one swoops one up and flies away eh wasn't that attached to him anyways I'm glad it wasn't me but if it's your brother you want to get to that dragon you want to know where that dragon's going you want to save your brother right or avenge him yeah or avenge him if it's too late to save him so you saw him get swooped up it's probably too late and not all relationships are positive maybe two characters don't like each other and that's, that's perfectly fine to have characters in your group that have a disdain for each other. For example, in our group, for a while, uh, one of our old groups, you know, Rimzin, the fighter, and my character hated each other. We, didn't, <laughs> we did not get along. Yeah, because he was Dragonborn, right? Yeah, exactly. And my character's whole thing was that he absolutely despised dragons. and Anything, even if he didn't fully understand that they weren't dragons. Right, anything that remotely looked lizard-like, yes. <laughs> really. Um, and so that that established a connection there. And then another character, Chark, in that group, you know, we were both kind of outlanders and kind of were exiled from our families. Doing your own thing. And so me and him, con- my character and his character connected and kind of, and they were both really like hard and didn't care about other people. And so, you know, they connected on that level. And then my character, uh, Rimzen, hated each other on that level. Right. So, and just those little connections I made with people with other people's characters, really added to the game and added to the way I played my character. Yeah, it changed the way you guys played your characters based on who you were with and where you were at. Exactly, because if something was happening to Rimzen, I necessarily wasn't the first one to jump up and defend him. (laughs) But if something was happening to Chark or Brotor, who my character was also had a close relationship with, Mm. I was the first person to jump up and defend them. That wraps up our player tip of the podcast. Don't be a dick. And you can avoid being a dick by... Building group connections. Please join us on our next episode where we will hear feedback from you guys, our heroes. We'll also discuss the different types of tools and visual aids that you can use to enhance your session. We hope you enjoyed your experience here at the Crit Academy. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help others find our show by leaving hopefully a five-star review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Libsyn. You can also subscribe to our channel so that we can help you on your future adventures. If you have any questions you would want answered or subjects you'd like us to discuss, please leave us feedback on Twitter and Facebook at Crit Academy, or you can email us at critacademy at gmail.com. I am your host, Justin. And I'm your co-host, Ryan. Thanks for listening. Keep your blades sharp and spells prepared, heroes. Heroes.